Chapter Twenty Four of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Royal Martyr. Let us return to the somber edifice confining a king become mere man, a queen still a queen, a maid who would be a martyr, and two poor children innocent from age if not by birth. The king was in the temple not the temple tower but the palace of the knights templars which had been used by artois as a pleasure resort the assembly had not haggled about his keep but awarded a handsome sum for the table of one who was a hearty eater like all the bourbons not only did the judges reprimand him for his untimely gluttony during his trial but they had a note made of the fact to be on record to our times in the temple he had three servants and thirteen attendants connected with the table. Each day's dinner was composed of four entrees, six varieties of roast meat, four fancy dishes, three kinds of stews, three dishes of fruit, and Bordeaux, Madeira, and Malvoisie wine. He and his son alone drank wine, as the queen and the princesses used water. On the material side he had nothing to complain of, but he lacked air, exercise, sunshine, and shady trees. Habituated by hunting in the royal forest to glade and covert, he had to content himself with a green yard where a few withered trees scattered prematurely blighted leaves on four parterres of yellowed grass. Every day at four, the royal family were walked out here as if they were so many head of stall-fed cattle. This was mean, unkind, ferocious in its cruelty, but less cruel and ferocious than the cells of the Pope's dungeons, where they had tried to drive Cogliostro to death, or the Leeds of Venice, or the Spielberg dungeons. We are not excusing the commune and not excusing kings. We are bound to say that the temple was a retaliation, terrible and fatal, but clumsy, for it was making a prosecution a persecution, and a criminal a martyr. What did they look like now? Those whom we have seen in their glory. The king with his weak eyes, flabby cheeks, hanging lips, and heavy, carefully poised step seemed like a good farmer upset by a great disaster. His melancholy was that of an agriculturalist whose barn had been burnt by lightning or his field swept by a cyclone. The queen's attitude was as usual, stiff, proud, and dreadfully irritating. Marie Antoinette had inspired love of grandeur in her time. In her decline, she inspired devotion, but never pity. That springs from sympathy, and she was never one for fellow-feeling. The guardian angel of the family was Princess Elizabeth, in her white dress, symbol of her purity of body and soul, her fair hair was the handsomer from the disuse of powder. The Princess Royal, notwithstanding the charm of youth, little interested anyone. A thorough Austrian, like her mother, her look had already the scorn and arrogance of vultures and royal races. The little Dauphin was more winning from his sickly white complexion and golden hair, but his eye was a hard raw blue, with an expression at times older than his age. He understood things too well, caught the idea from a glance of his mother's eye, 
and showed politic cunning which sometimes wrung tears from those who tormented him. The commune were cruel and imprudent. They changed the watchers daily and sent spies under the guise of town officers. These went in sworn enemies to the king and came out enemies to the death of Marie Antoinette, but almost all pitying the king, sorrowing for his children and glorifying the lady Elizabeth. Indeed, what did they see at the prison? Instead of the wolf, the she-wolf, and the whelps, an ordinary middle-class family, with the mother rather the grey mare and spitfire, who would not let anyone touch the hem of her dress but of a brood of tyrants, not a trace. The king had taken up Latin again in order to educate his son, while the queen occupied herself with her daughter. The link of communication between the couple was the valet Clary, attached to the prince royal, but from the king's own servant, Hugh being dismissed, he waited on both. While hair-dressing for the ladies, he repeated what the king wanted to transmit, quickly and in undertones. The queen would often interrupt her reading to her daughter by plunging into deep and gloomy musings. The princess would steal away on tiptoe to let her enjoy a new sorrow, which at least had the benefit of tears, and make a hushing sign to her brother. When the tear fell on her ivory hand, beginning to yellow, the poor prisoner would start back from her dream, her momentary freedom in the immense domain of thought and memories, and look round her prison with a lowered head and broken heart. Weather permitting, the family had a walk in the garden at one o'clock, with a corporal and his squad of the National Guard to watch them. Then the king went up to his rooms and on the third story to dine. It was then that Santerre came for his rigorous inspection. The king sometimes spoke with him, the queen never. She had forgotten what she owed to this man on the 20th of June. As we have stated, bodily needs were tyrannical in the king, who always indulged in an after-dinner nap. During this, the others remained silent around his easy chair. Only when he woke was the chat resumed. When the newsboys called out the news items in the evening, Clary listened and repeated what he caught to the king. After supper, the king went into the queen's room to bid her good night, as well as his sister, by a wave of the hand, and going into his library read till midnight. He waited before going off to sleep to see the guards changed, to know whether he had a strange face for the night watcher. This unchanging life lasted till the king left the small tower, that is, up to September 30th. It was a dull situation, and the more worthy of pity as it was dignifiedly supported. The most hostile were softened by the sight. They came to watch over the abominable tyrant who had ruined France, massacred Frenchmen, and called the foreigners in. Over the queen, who had united the lubricities of Messalina to the license of Catherine II. But they found a plain old fellow, whom they could not tell from his valet, who ate and drank heartily and slept soundly, playing piquet or backgammon, teaching Latin and geography to his boy, and putting puzzles to his children out of old newspapers, and a wife, proud and haughty, one must admit, but calm, dignified, resigned, still handsome, teaching her daughter tapestry work and her son his prayers, 
speaking gently to the servants and calling them friends. The result was that the more the commune abased the prisoner, and the more he showed that he was like any other man, the more other men took pity on their fellow man. Still, all who came into contact with the royal family did not feel the same respect and pity. Hatred and revenge were so deeply rooted in these that the sight of the regal misery, supported with domestic virtues, only brought out rudeness, insults, and actual indignities. On the king saying that he thought a sentry was tired, the soldier pressed his hat on the more firmly and said in the teeth of the monarch, "'My place is here to keep an eye on you, and not for you to criticize me. Nobody has the right to meddle with my business, and you least of all.' Once the queen ventured to ask a town officer where he came from. "'I belong to the country,' he loftily replied. "'At least as much of it as your foreign friends have not taken possession of.' One day a municipal officer said to Clary, loud enough for the king to overhear, "'I would guillotine the lot of them if the regular executioner backed out.' The sentinels decked the walls where the royalists came along to go into the garden with lines in this style. The guillotine is a standing institution and is waiting for the tyrant Louis. Madame Vito will soon dance on nothing. The fat hog must be put on short rations. Pull off the red ribbon he wears. It will do to strangle his cubs with. One drawing represented a man hanging and was labelled Louis taking an air-bath. The worst tormentors were two lodgers in the temple, Rache the sapper and Simon the notorious cobbler. The latter, whose harsh treatment of the royal child has made him noted, was insult personified. Every time he saw the prisoners it was to inflict a fresh outrage. Rache was the man whom we saw take up the Dauphin when Charny fell, and carry him into the house. Yet he, placed by Manuel to prevent harm befalling the captives, resembled those boys who are given a bird to keep. They kill time by plucking out the feathers one by one. But, however unhappy the prisoners were, they had yet the comfort that they were under the same roof. The commune resolved to part the king from his family. Clary had an inkling of the intention, but he could not get at the exact date until a general searching of the prisoners on the twenty-ninth of September gave him a hint. That night, indeed, they took away the king into rooms in the great tower, which were wet with plaster and paint, and the smell was unbearable. But the king lay down to sleep without complaining, while the valet passed the night on a chair. When he was going out to attend to the prince, whose attendant he strictly was, the guard stopped him, saying, "'You are no longer to have communications with the other prisoners. The king is not to see his children any more.' As they omitted to bring special food for the servant, the king broke his bread with him, weeping while the man sobbed. When the workmen came to finish the rooms, the town officer who superintended them came up to the king with some pity and said, "'Citizen, I have seen your family at breakfast, and I undertake to say that all were in health.' The king's heart ached at this kind feeling. 
he thanked the man and begged him to transmit the report of his health to his dear ones he asked for some books and as the man could not read he accompanied clary down into the other rooms to let him select the reading matter clary was only too glad as this gave an opportunity of seeing the queen he could not say more than a few words on account of the soldiers being present the queen could not hold out any longer and she besought to let them all have a meal in company the municipal officers weakened and allowed this until further orders one of them wept and simon said hang me if these confounded women will not get the waterworks running in my eyes but he added addressing the queen you did not do any weeping when you shot down the people on the tenth of august <sighs> said the queen the people have been much misled about our feelings toward them if you knew us better you would be sorry like this gentleman so the dinner was served in the old place it was a feast for they gained so much in one day they thought they gained everything for nothing more was heard of the commune's new regulation the king continued to see his family daily and to take his meals with them one of these days when he went in he found the queen sweeping up the dauphin's room who was unwell he stopped on the sill let his head sink on his breast and sighed ah my lady this is sorry work for a queen of france and if they could see from vienna what you are doing here who would have thought that in uniting you to my fate i should ever bring you so low do you reckon it as nothing replied marie antoinette this glory of being the wife of the best and most persecuted of men this was spoken without an idea there were hearers but all such sayings were picked up and diffused to embroider with gold the dark legend of the martyr king end of chapter twenty four recording by john van stan savannah georgia